0: Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our December 2016 issue. This month, we feature several articles from our Focus on Geriatric Psychiatry special section. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Studies have documented increased levels of a number of inflammatory markers in people with depression, one of which is nitric oxide. Using data from the 2007 to 2012 National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys, investigators from Janssen looked at the association of depression with levels of both C-reactive protein and exhaled nitric oxide. This cross-sectional study comprised a population of 10,000 subjects who were representative of the U.S. population. Depression was associated with high levels of C-reactive protein and low levels of exhaled nitric oxide. The authors discuss how their findings support a role for inflammation in the pathophysiology of depression and that depression may be seen as a psychoneuroimmunological disorder. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the December Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. Anemia is common in the elderly. Several cross-sectional studies have pointed to a significant association between anemia and depression but lack of prospective data has made it impossible to know if depression was a cause or an effect of anemia moreover available data suggests that the relationship between anemia and depression is stronger in men than in women With support from Italian institutions, the authors of this study investigated the association between baseline hemoglobin concentrations and the emergence of depression in a cohort of community-dwelling people aged 65 or older, randomly drawn from an epidemiologically representative sample in northern Italy. Among more than 1,300 elderly people without depression at baseline, 294 subjects developed depression during the four-and-a-half-year follow-up period. After adjustment for relevant confounders, lower baseline hemoglobin levels were most strongly associated with emerging depression at follow-up in men, but not in women. A decrease in one point of hemoglobin concentration increased the risk of depression by about 28%. Moreover, men who had baseline hemoglobin levels in the lowest third had a 68% increased risk of developing depression, rising to an over 100% increased risk in men suffering from anemia. Conversely, no significant association between hemoglobin or anemia and depression was found for women. Although significant, lower hemoglobin and anemia at follow-up was less strongly associated with incident depression in men. The authors conclude that clinicians should screen for anemia and depression in elderly men and seek to determine physical causes of anemia. Future studies are needed to clarify whether correcting low hemoglobin levels in elderly men can prevent depression. Limited evidence exists to help clinicians manage patients with schizophrenia who experience inadequate symptom improvement early in the course of antipsychotic therapy. Current treatment strategies include dose increase, switching to an alternate medication, adding an adjunctive agent, or maintaining the current dose for a longer period. In this article, Lobel and colleagues report results from a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial sponsored by Synovian that evaluated the effectiveness of antipsychotic dose escalation in hospitalized patients with schizophrenia. All patients demonstrated early non-response after two weeks of standard dose lorazodone treatment. All study medication was given once daily at night with food, and the study duration was six weeks. In early non-responders, increasing the dose of lorazodone to 160 mg per day was associated with statistically and clinically meaningful improvement in symptoms, compared with continuing treatment at the initial dose of 80 mg per day. Increased frequency of some adverse events including anxiety, abdominal discomfort, akathisia, insomnia, and somnolence was reported at the higher dose. This study also evaluated the efficacy of low-dose lorazepam in the treatment of patients with acute schizophrenia. Lorazepam at 20 mg per day was found to be ineffective supporting the currently recommended dose range of 40 to 160 milligrams per day for patients with schizophrenia. The authors conclude that dose escalation may be a preferred approach for patients with schizophrenia who demonstrate inadequate initial response to lorazidome This article is freely available online. Please visit the December Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. Even though everybody worries to some extent, the worries that characterize generalized anxiety disorder are excessive and pervasive. They can lead to physical and psychiatric symptoms, functional impairment, and economic consequences. In this eight-week, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, flexible-dose study, which was supported through funding from Forrest Laboratories an affiliate of Allergan, researchers examined the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of Velazodone, 20 to 40 milligrams per day, as an acute treatment for generalized anxiety disorder. Vilazodone is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor and serotonin 1A receptor partial agonist that is approved for the treatment of major depressive disorder in adults. In this study, analyses were based on 200 placebo-treated and 200 vilazodone treated adult patients who were 18 to 70 years of age. 76% of patients completed this study. The difference in total score reduction from baseline to week 8 on the Hamilton anxiety rating scale, the primary efficacy outcome, was significantly greater for Velazodone versus placebo. This result suggested that anxiety symptoms were improved following Velazodone treatment. Furthermore, Improvement in functional impairment was suggested by significantly greater differences for valazodone-treated versus placebo-treated patients in the Sheehan Disability Scale total score and on each individual scale item, work, school, family life, and social life. The most common adverse events for valazodone patients were nausea, diarrhea, dizziness, and headache. Small and similar changes for vilazodone and placebo on the changes in sexual functioning questionnaire suggested that vilazodone had minimal impact on sexual function. The authors conclude that treatment with vilazodone improved anxiety symptoms and functional impairment associated with generalized anxiety disorder. This article is freely available online. Please visit the December Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. As novel antidepressants with rapid onset of action are developed, there is a growing need to identify ways to detect and measure this rapid change. A recent study supported by Janssen looked at whether symptoms of depression, as covered in the 10 items of the Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale, fluctuated in a 24-hour period. The study further examined whether administration of this scale with a 24-hour recall period could be used to assess rapid onset of antidepressant effect. Patients with treatment-resistant depression and healthcare professionals who were experienced using the montgomery Asperg scale were interviewed using a semi-structured approach. The majority of patients and healthcare professionals reported that depressive symptoms did fluctuate during a twenty four hour period and that this window of time could be used to capture meaningful changes in the majority of depression symptoms assessed with this scale. The authors believe their findings support the appropriateness of the Montgomery Asperg scale to assess change in major depressive symptomatology over a twenty four hour period. They suggest that it can be a useful tool for capturing rapid improvements of symptoms following treatment or a depressive episode. They also note that follow-up over several days to weeks may be necessary to confirm that the observed change is real and can be sustained. In older persons, depression is frequent and commonly coexists with other chronic diseases. Poor adherence to long-term therapy for chronic diseases is the single most important modifiable factor that comprises treatment outcomes. In this month's CME offering, the authors evaluated the prevalence of prescriptions for and adherence to selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs. They also investigated whether adherence to these classes of drugs affects overall medication adherence in older persons by examining the data on drug prescriptions from a large administrative Italian database collected annually from 2011 through 2013. Of the nearly 18 million individuals represented in the database in 2013, approximately 30% of the Italian population, about 3.7 million were aged 65 years or older. Information on each drug package was tracked at the individual level, and only medications prescribed and dispensed by a pharmacy were considered. Study results show that the prevalence of SSRI and SNRI prescriptions was quite high, ranging from 11.4% in 2011 to 12.1% in 2013. Adherence to SSRIs and SNRIs, calculated according to four age groups and during three years of observations, was least in persons aged 95 years or older in 2011 and highest in persons aged 75 to 84 years in 2013. Older persons adherent to these classes of antidepressants were more likely to be adherent to the other therapeutic categories for chronic diseases they were prescribed. The highest association was found with other psychiatric drugs. Based on these results, the authors recommend further evaluation of possible interventions aimed at increasing adherence to antidepressants, which may translate into improved overall adherence and patient outcomes. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the December Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. In this study sponsored by the U.S. Department of Defense, researchers at a Veterans Affairs Medical Center in New York compared two treatments for male and female at-risk suicidal veterans ranging in age from 18 to 55 years. One group received six months of treatment as usual, and another group received six months of dialectical behavioral therapy, commonly known as DBT. Treatment as usual included enhanced monitoring of the patient, outreach, and availability of a designated suicide prevention coordinator. DBT included a validated behavioral treatment that emphasized the role of emotional regulation in the treatment of suicidal and self-destructive behaviors. All patients had access to a psychiatrist and other health services. Overall, 91 patients were randomized into this treatment trial, with 45 patients in the treatment-as-usual group and 46 in DBT. In contrast to other published studies, the present study found no advantage for DBT compared to treatment-as-usual in any of the outcome measures. Both groups showed significant improvements in suicidal ideation, depression, and anxiety during the six months of treatment. However, DBT subjects utilized significantly more individual mental health services than the treatment-as-usual subjects. At the six-month post-treatment follow-up, DBT produced a significantly larger improvement in anxiety compared to the treatment as usual. The authors conclude that the future study of possible gender differences and the development of strategies to boost retention in difficult-to-engage, homeless, and substance-abusing populations may help tease out the factors that contribute to successful treatment. Irritability and anger attacks are common in Major Depressive Disorder, or MDD. Anger, which encompasses irritability, affects approximately one-third of depressed patients with irritable mood. Some of the symptoms associated with irritability and anger attacks include greater disease severity, increased incidence of suicidality, a higher incidence of anxiety and impulse control disorders, and poorer quality of life. In the current study sponsored by Lundbeck and Otsuka, the authors investigated the effects of adjunctive Brexpiprazole on symptoms of irritability in patients with MDD. Brexpiprazole is an antidepressant recently approved for adjunctive use in adult patients with MDD and inadequate response to antidepressant treatment. 54 patients with irritable mood and an inadequate response to their current antidepressant received six weeks of open-label treatment with adjunctive Brexpiprazole. At the end of the six weeks, clinically relevant improvements were observed on a number of endpoints assessing irritability and anger. More patients stopped having anger attacks than developed them during treatment. Depressive symptoms also improved. Adjunctive Brexpiprazole was well tolerated. The authors conclude that adjunctive treatment with Brexpiprazole may represent a strategy for treatment of patients with MDD, an inadequate response to antidepressant treatment who have symptoms of irritability. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the December Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. One common side effect induced by antipsychotics is hyperprolactinemia. This side effect can result in gonadal dysfunction, such as amenorrhea, galactorrhea, and loss of libido. It can also create metabolic problems, including insulin resistance and low bone mineral density. Although evidence suggests that older patients with schizophrenia have a hypersensitivity to antipsychotics, It has been unclear whether an age-related hypersensitivity exists for antipsychotic-induced hyperprolactinemia. To shed light on this issue, the authors of this study investigated the dopamine D2 and D3 receptor occupancy threshold for hyperprolactinemia in 42 older patients with clinically stable schizophrenia. Data were taken from a previous study that examined antipsychotic dose reduction in older patients with schizophrenia who were taking olanzapine or risperidone. Subjects underwent PET scans to measure D2 and D3 receptor occupancy before and after reducing their antipsychotic dose by up to 40%. Results showed that prolactin levels decreased following dose reduction. A dopamine D2 and D3 receptor occupancy threshold for hyperprolactinemia of 66% was identified in older patients with schizophrenia, which is lower than the 73% found in younger patients in earlier studies. The authors conclude that older patients with schizophrenia exhibit hyperprolactinemia with lower dopamine D2 and D3 receptor occupancy compared to younger patients. Clinicians are advised to monitor prolactin levels to minimize exposure to antipsychotics while maintaining their clinical effectiveness in stable older patients with schizophrenia. This study was supported with funding from the Canadian Institutes of Health and Research and the U.S. National Institutes of Health. Many patients with depression or bipolar disorder experience memory and concentration difficulties but treatment options for these cognitive problems are lacking. The success rates of previous trials in this area might have been impacted by a lack of consensus on whether and how to screen for cognitive impairment before including patients in a trial. Erythropoietin, or EPO, is best known from blood doping in competitive sports because it stimulates red cell production. However, it also has important functions in the brain where it stimulates the birth of new cells and their connections. Researchers from Denmark previously found that eight weeks of EPO treatment had beneficial effects on cognitive function in depression and bipolar disorder in two randomized, placebo-controlled trials. They then reassessed data from 79 patients to determine the characteristics of patients who showed greatest cognitive benefits. Patients with objectively measured memory impairment at baseline had substantially greater treatment success than patients with no or only subtle baseline memory problems. Patients with more subjective cognitive difficulties and longer illness duration also showed better chances for treatment success. The authors advise that objective screening for cognitive impairment with a brief neuropsychological test may be useful before including patients in cognition trials to increase the chances of treatment success on cognition. This study received funding support from Novo Nordisk Foundation and other Danish institutions. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, is a debilitating condition with an estimated lifetime prevalence of about 2.5%. Serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SRIs, are used as first-line treatment for OCD, but as many as 60% of patients fail to respond. Several strategies have been developed to increase treatment efficacy, including augmenting an SRI with an additional drug from a different class, antipsychotics, for example, and have shown some promising results. Lately, several trials have shown some positive results for add-on treatment with glutamatergic agents. In this meta-analysis, the authors review the current literature on augmentation strategies with glutamatergic substances and apply a random effects model for the meta-analysis to quantify their overall effect size. They identified eight trials that fulfilled the inclusion criteria for the review. Five different drugs were tested, memantine, lamotrigine, topiramate, glycine, and N-acetylcysteine. The overall relative risk ratio for response was about four, which was statistically significant. This meta-analysis showed that glutamatergic agents can be successfully used for the add-on treatment of OCD. Because of this small number of trials, it is impossible to draw conclusions about differences in efficacy among the five agents. However, based on the study's review, the highest relative risk ratio for response was observed for lamotrigine, while the lowest relative risk ratio for dropouts due to adverse effects was observed for the two studies with memantine. The authors conclude that glutamatergic agents are effective as add-on treatment for OCD in general and especially for treatment refractory OCD. Evidence of potential biological and disease-modifying properties of cholinesterase inhibitors in Alzheimer's disease is controversial. Several clinical studies on structural imaging markers in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease have reported conflicting results. Cortical thickness represents a promising structural imaging endpoint in clinical trials, as it offers a direct assessment of effect sizes expressed in a meaningful metric. In a post hoc study of research supported by ESI SAS France, investigators studied the effect of one year of donepizil treatment on cortical thickness in patients with prodromal Alzheimer's disease. Patients were enrolled in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. The treatment group received 10 mg per day of donepizil. Structural MRI images were processed using the automated pipeline for longitudinal segmentation and surface reconstruction implemented in FreeSurfer. The primary outcome measure was annualized percentage change of cortical thickness. Compared to placebo, results after one year of treatment for the donepizil group revealed reduced cortical thinning in the anterior cingulate, orbital frontal, and right inferior frontal cortices, and in the right insula. These findings support the hypothesis that cortical thickness may be a reliable candidate surrogate outcome in clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease. In addition, these results suggest that one year of donepezil treatment may have an impact on cortical areas innervated by the medial and lateral cholinergic pathways. Turine is an inhibitory amino acid in the central nervous system. It also functions as a neuroprotective agent and has a role in neurodevelopment and neurogenesis. To learn more about it, the authors of this institute-sponsored study explored whether taurine had any influence on the symptoms of psychosis when given for three months to patients aged 18 to 25 years as an add-on treatment to their antipsychotic medication. In this placebo-controlled study, four grams of taurine were given once daily as an active comparator. As an exploratory trial, there were two co-primary outcomes symptomatology, and cognitive measures of thinking skills. Of the patients who attended early intervention services, 121 subjects with first-episode psychosis consented to participate. 86 participants were included in the final analysis. Results showed that taurine had no effect on cognitive functioning compared to placebo. However, it significantly improved symptomatology as measured on psychopathology and psychotic subscales. Additionally, improvements were observed in depression-scale scores and general functioning scores. Despite limitations of the study, the authors conclude that adjunctive taurine appears to improve psychopathology in patients with first-episode psychosis. The use of taurine warrants further investigation in larger randomized studies, particularly for its effects early in the course of psychosis. While antipsychotics such as risperidone and aripiprazole are useful for controlling behavioral symptoms in children with intellectual disability or autism spectrum disorder, they are also associated with adverse reactions. Weight gain, behavior problems associated with dieting, hyperprolactinemia, oversedation, and dullness are common in children who take these medications. Risperidone and aripiprazole are clinically safe and efficacious in the short term, but are clinicians and families satisfied with the trade-off? This question determines compliance with therapies and is crucial in the setting of lifelong conditions like intellectual disability and autism spectrum disorder. A study conducted with support of Italian institutions investigated risperidone and aripiprazole in a naturalistic setting for two years. The mean age of the patients was 12 years. 27% of patients discontinued drugs by the first year and 39% by the second, mainly by family's choice. No difference was seen in the comparative effectiveness of risperidone and aripiprazole. The authors note that because the low overall persistence of therapy was attributed mainly to caregiver discontinuation, the need for improvement in both choice and management of antipsychotic therapies for pediatric patients is pressing. How do antipsychotics compare to one another in terms of efficacy? Which ones are particularly effective for treatment-resistant patients? In this month's clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade considers the findings of large network meta-analyses to look for some answers. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the December Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. We are pleased to announce the launch of Practicing Psychiatry in the Digital Age, a new website supported by ODH, Inc., that aims to bridge the gap between technology and the treatment of those suffering from mental illness. The website features an editorial by Dr. John P. Docherty, an expert on implementing innovative technologies into both the clinical and managed care settings, as well as brief summaries and blog discussions of research exploring exciting advancements in digital mental health care. Visit digitalage.psychiatrist.com today to see everything that this site has to offer. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the December issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com or just enter December into the keyword search. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.